So when you get a new roommate, the first thing that happens to you is you need to make a place in the house for them. And you need to set up the ground rules for living together. And that's exactly what God sets out to do with the Israelites. Only this time, it's complicated by God's utter holiness and the fact that just getting too close to him or looking directly at him can cause immediate death. Up to now, the pillar of cloud has led the Israelites in their travels. But now, they're hunkering down for a year here at the foot of Mount Sinai so they can go to God's school and learn how to be a nation of priests and a blessing to the world. So what happens to the pillar of cloud? So far, it's been up on top of Mount Sinai, and that's where God has called Moses up to speak with him. But 40 days from now, Moses is going to come down from that mountain, and that pillar of cloud and fire is going to come down too. What happens then? Well, Exodus 33.7 tells us that up to now, Moses would take a tent and pitch it out a distance away from the camp. He called this the tent of meeting. Whenever Moses would go out to the tent, the people would come and stand at the entrance of their own tents and watch him go. When he would enter the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay by the entrance while Moses spoke with the Lord. And Moses would speak to the Lord just like you would speak to a friend. And if anyone wanted to ask the Lord a question, they could come out to the tent of meeting. The warrior Joshua, Moses' young assistant, stayed out there with Moses. And even when Moses went back to the main camp, Joshua stayed with the tent. But now God needs a tent of meeting within the camp, among the people. Now that's a pretty scary proposition, but God's got a plan. He's going to set up a special tent in a protected compound. So there are several layers of protection so no one accidentally gets knocked down dead. The new tent of meeting and the space around it is to be called the tabernacle. That's just a word meaning dwelling place. This is God's room. And it will be beautiful, carefully designed and ornamented as befits the room of God. But remember, the Israelites are migrating to the promised land, so this whole shebang has to be portable. The description begins in Exodus 25. In the very most inner room of the tent, there is to be a special box called an ark. This is where God will dwell. This is basically God's throne on earth among the Israelites. It's not his actual heavenly throne, but God's making a sort of traveling version. It's to be covered with pure gold inside and out, with poles so the Israelites can carry it wherever they move. Inside the ark, Moses is to put a jar of manna and the tablets of the law that God is writing for him right now on top of that mountain. Later, that almond branch will go in it, but we haven't gotten to that story yet. The tablets aren't the traditional looking slab made out of stone that's shown here on the right. No, this is a covenant, a contract between God and his people. And in ancient times, you always made two copies of a contract, one copy for each party. In this case, God wants both copies of the contract placed in the Ark for safekeeping. And that's why it came to be called the Ark of the Covenant. The lid of the Ark is not gold-plated wood, but instead is to be made of pure gold. This cover is where God will sit. 
and God names this cover the mercy seat. It covers all debts. When you come to God, this is where you'll find him, where there is mercy and forgiveness. On either end of the Ark of the Covenant are to be gold cherubim facing each other, crafted so their wings stretch across the mercy seat and their wingtips touch. We've heard of cherubs before back in Genesis. Remember when God closed the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim with fiery swords to guard the entrance? And there are descriptions in the Bible of God's actual heavenly throne room that various prophets see in visions. And all of these descriptions indicate these great glorious creatures, the cherubim, standing at the side of God's throne. These are the only heavenly winged creatures described in the Bible. As you know, angels are never described as having wings. But the cherubim, also sometimes described as seraphim, have multiple wings, multiple faces, a zillion eyes, and spherical wheels. And they move with the Holy Spirit in whatever direction it goes. They are like God's honor guard. So that's all pretty intense. This inner sanctum, where God's glory hovers over the mercy seat, is called the Holy of Holies, for obvious reasons. It's entirely enclosed by curtains, Actually, all the rooms in the tabernacle are divided by beautifully crafted and ornate curtains. The fabric is woven from finely spun linen with yarn of purple, scarlet, and blue. Cherubim designs are woven into it. The panels are held in place by stanchions covered in gold. Anyone who's worked in an office with movable partitions will have a good feel for how the tabernacle is constructed. These partitions are six and a half feet tall and will be covered by a tent roof. Outside of the Holy of Holies is a second room called the Holy Place. On one side of the Holy Place is a wooden table that is overlaid with pure gold and has platters, pans, jars, and bowls on it of pure gold. It too has poles for transport. A special bread, 12 loaves of it, is to be on the table at all times. God names this bread the bread of presence, or the bread of faces. On the other side of the room will be a golden lampstand. The word is menorah in Hebrew. It will have six arms, three on each side, with one main arm in the center, all beautifully crafted in gold to look like leaves and buds and almond flowers. Each cup of the menorah will be filled with olive oil with wicks that are to be lit every day. The third and final piece in the holy place is a small altar for burning incense. It is to be placed just outside the entrance to the Holy of Holies. The altar is overlaid with gold and has small protrusions on the corners that are called horns. Like the other furnishings, it also has poles for carrying it. Incense is to be burned there perpetually for all generations. And that's it. That's all that's on the inside of the new tent of meeting. The outside of the tent of meeting is protected by more durable curtains made of goat's hair. And over the top of the tent, spread over the frames and stanchions, is a cover made of ram skin. And over that, an outer cover of leather. The tent of meeting is surrounded by a courtyard with a fence of linen curtains. The entrance to this courtyard is a huge linen curtain, 32 feet wide embroidered with purple, blue, and scarlet. Can you imagine? And all the fittings for all these curtains are either silver or gold. It's, it's an incredible sight. 
When you enter the courtyard, the first thing you see is a huge bronze-covered altar. This is where burnt offerings are made to the Lord. It's five feet tall and eight feet square. And it has a sort of shelf halfway up the side to make it possible for the priests to step up to manage the sacrifices. The altar is hollow on the inside with a grate on top. Beyond the bronze altar and just before the entrance to the tent of meeting is a large bronze basin for the priests to wash their hands and feet before entering the tent. This model is on a tall pedestal, but I'm thinking it must have been a little lower to the ground to make it easier to wash their feet. So what's the deal with the sacrifices? Are all the sacrifices the same? Just bring your animal as scheduled and have the priest sacrifice it? Well, no. There are all kinds of different sacrifices, and they all have different sorts of meanings. Are the sacrifices just a barbaric ancient custom to appease an angry god? Well, I have to admit they're pretty barbaric by today's cultural norms. But as with all of this, if we look to the deeper meaning and purpose, we're bound to find the hand of a loving God. Sacrifices, believe it or not, were usually made by regular lay people with only a little help from the priests. In fact, last week we saw that the young men of Israel were the ones who made those first sacrifices at the foot of Mount Sinai. However, it is very, very important to God that the Israelites learn how to be priests in the world, and for this, they need a pattern. They need to understand what it means to be set apart for a holy purpose, and yet interacting with and giving agency to the world. And they need to understand that they're messing with God, with God's power, and that's not to be done lightly. The first thing that's helpful to realize is that for a given offering, you need to know why it's being made. For example, you may be doing a sacrifice to ask forgiveness for a sin or an error, but you might also be making it as a free will offering to the Lord, or perhaps it's an offering of thanksgiving or fellowship with the Lord, or perhaps it's to fulfill a special vow you made to the Lord. Like you remember the vow Jacob made when he was fleeing to Haran and he vowed to come back and worship the Lord at Bethel and give him a 10% tithe if the Lord would protect him and bring him back safely. That, that is the kind of sacrifice you would make on fulfillment of a vow. Once you know why an offering is being made, then you can determine what exactly needs to be offered. The word sacrifice would apply when an animal is involved. Grain or bread or wine are not burned, except for a small handful of flour if the offering is a flour. In fact, although an animal may be slaughtered, it's often not burned on the altar in its entirety. Whenever grain, wine, or parts of an animal are not burned, the person lifts them up to the Lord before eating them. This is called a wave offering as opposed to a burnt offering. So let's look at what happens with these various kinds of sacrifices. The differences are really interesting. The most serious, of course, are the sin offerings. This is for when you unintentionally sin against the Lord and no restitution is possible. The requirements vary depending on whether it's a regular person, a leader like one of the elders, a priest, or even the whole community that has sinned. God does not want us weighed down with guilt or feeling separated from him. He wants us to acknowledge our sin or guilt to ourselves and our community and then give it over to him. 
Here's how he teaches the Israelites to do it. If it's the whole community that sinned, a bull without blemish is brought to the tabernacle. The elders of the community lay their hands on the animal's head, essentially transferring the sin of the community to the bull before it's slaughtered. Some of the blood is taken inside the tent of meeting to the holy place and is sprinkled seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the Holy of Holies. The priest also puts some of the blood on the horns of the altar of incense in the holy place, and the rest of the blood he pours at the base of the big bronze altar in the courtyard. The fat and internal organs are burned on the altar. Then the priest must take the rest of the bull's carcass outside of camp and burn it. In this way, the entire community understands their sins are completely incinerated and they are forgiven. That priest would have had to drag that carcass all the way through the camp where all the people could see it. The exact same process is followed if the priest himself has sinned, except, of course, it's the priest who places his hands on the head of the bull. But what if it's a regular person or perhaps a community leader who has sinned? As soon as the regular person realizes they've committed a sin or done something forbidden, they're to bring a female goat or lamb without blemish to the tabernacle courtyard. If it's a leader, then they have to bring a male goat, an offering of higher economic value. There they lay their hands on the animal in symbolic transfer of their sin and then slaughter it. They slaughter their sin. Notice that the person themselves is doing the sacrifice. In either case, the priest takes some of the blood and uses his finger to paint it on the horns of the big bronze altar. This is where the altar itself is purified. So putting the blood there is indicative of the solemnity of the ceremony, sort of an extra layer of holiness. The rest of the blood is splashed on the side of the altar. Then the person removes the fat from the animal and the priest burns the fat on the altar. And that's it. The newly humbled person's sins are forgiven, and they're free to go home and start again. In the case of the regular person or the leader, the rest of the animal doesn't have to be dragged outside of camp and burned. Instead, the rest of the animal is given to the priests for food. But remember, this animal has been offered to the Lord in atonement for sin, so everyone who touches the animal becomes holy and the meat must be eaten by the priests within the tabernacle courtyard. And on top of that, if the meat is cooked in a clay pot, the pot has to be broken. And if the pot is unbreakable like a bronze pot, it has to be thoroughly scoured after being used. The next most, most serious sort of offering is one required to make reparation for a wrong you've done to a neighbor or to the Lord. This is also called a guilt offering. This is stuff like breaking a commandment, deceiving or cheating your neighbor for your own personal gain, or lying about something. The very first thing that happens is you must make full restitution to the person you wronged. If the wrong cannot be easily valued, such as when a wrong is done to the Lord, the priest determines what a fair value is. Then you must bring a ram for sacrifice, not quite as expensive as a bull, but still a pretty hefty sacrifice. And on top of that, you must give a payment worth 20% of the value of the wrong done. If the wrong was done to a person, the 20% goes to them. Whereas if you wronged the Lord by breaking a commandment, the 20% would go to the priest. 
But in any case, the Lord is serious about restitution. As with a sin offering, only the fat and internal organs are burned. The rest of the animal is given to the priests for food. God is not in the business of wasting his creation. The other offerings are all very similar to each other, with only some variations in exactly what is to be offered. For all three types, the free will offering, the fellowship or peace offering, and the offering in fulfillment of a vow, an animal is sacrificed. But these animals are less expensive, goats or sheep, and they can be male or female, and in some cases even have a slight blemish. The person lays their hands on the animal's head, same as before. It's almost as if the animal is a sort of mailbox to God. The person themselves slaughters the animal, and the priest again burns the fat and internal organs on the altar. One difference is that no blood is sprinkled or poured. Another difference is that these types of offerings are accompanied by grain or bread offerings, some of which are made with yeast and some without yeast. Or instead of bread, the person can bring a portion of their finest flour, pour olive oil on it, and put frankincense on it. They bring it to the priest who takes a handful of the mixture and burns it on the altar. The aroma, the Lord says, is pleasing to him. It's the aroma of us giving our best. And if you think about it, the offering of an animal from a herd would be an offering from a man, whereas an offering of food or flour with oil and frankincense could be an offering prepared by a woman, I assume. In addition to the animal and the bread, a wine offering is also brought. The bread, flour, or grain, plus the breast and right thigh of the animal are waved before the Lord as a wave offering and then given to the priest to eat. But the rest of the animal and the wine are consumed by the person and their family right there in the tabernacle courtyard. It's a Thanksgiving feast shared by the people with their Lord when they bring a freewill offering, a fellowship offering, or a vow offering. The Lord even makes provision for the poor, those who cannot afford to offer a lamb or a goat for the various sacrifices. The poor can bring doves or young pigeons, and if they can't afford even that, they can just bring a grain offering of fine flour. So why are all these offerings for the people to do themselves? Why not have the priests do them all? Well, for one thing, the workload would be impossible for the priests to handle. And for another, this whole elaborate rigmarole is a sort of a big kingdom of heaven simulator. It's to teach the Israelites about God and how to be priests in the world. But also, it turns out that the Israelites have been taking animals outside the camp, and sometimes even inside the camp, and sacrificing them to goat idols. Yikes, not good. They need to be sacrificing to Yahweh only. This is a way of weaning them from those other idols and teaching them to devote these same ritual acts to God. God's serious about this. Anyone who insists on continuing to sacrifice to goat idols is rejecting God. The sacrifice is not holy. The person is to be cut off from the people, rejected from the community, as indeed the goat worshiper has already rejected God. So in addition to the various special purpose offerings, there are also general offerings. These are all done by the priests. Every day, year in and year out, the priests are to offer one year old lamb each morning and one at twilight each evening, along with food and drink offerings, 
to consecrate the tent of meeting, the altar, and the priests themselves. And once a month, at the new moon, the community is to offer a burnt offering of two young bulls, a ram, seven male lambs without blemish, plus their associated grain offerings and drink offerings. And in addition to these, a male goat is also offered as a sort of general offering for sins each month. That's a whole lot of sacrificing. But notice how it's woven into the five senses of sight, touch, hearing, taste, and smell. Every possible way we can learn, the Lord is using to drive home the message that we can come to him for forgiveness and fellowship and that there are many avenues to him. He always makes provision to meet us where we are in a way we understand. Whether we are rich or poor, the Lord adapts to our situation. But the Lord still needs to teach the people what the function of a priest is so that they understand what it means to be a nation of priests in the world. So let's talk about that for a second. The Lord tells Moses that Aaron and his sons and their sons after them are to be consecrated, set apart, ordained as full-time priests. One will be the high priest. But they'll need lots of help setting the tabernacle up, transporting it, taking it down and packing it, and keeping the courtyard clean. Think about all the ashes, all the wood needed to keep the altar fire burning 24-7, the water that has to be hauled in and out, and the general mess that needs to be cleaned up every day. So the Lord designates their extended male family, the rest of the tribe of Levi, and all their descendants as helpers. They are collectively called the Levites. Remember how the Lord said the firstborn belonged to him and that all the firstborn of man and animal must be redeemed? Here, the Lord says the Levites will become for him the firstborn of Israel. What an honor. The Lord also has very specific instructions for the beautiful garments the priests are to wear. First are linen loincloths covering them from waist to thigh. The Lord is mindful of the climbing the priests have to do to tend the altar. Over this is a robe of fine linen with an embroidered sash. I love that the Lord appreciates our handwork and craftsmanship. In fact, the Lord actually picks out the craftsman he wants to work on the tabernacle. These basic garments plus a linen turban are worn by all the priests. The high priest, however, wears additional garments. Over the linen robe, the high priest is to wear a blue tunic, and along the hem are yarn balls shaped like pomegranates, and those alternate with gold bells. The gold bells will announce the priest's entrance to and exit from the holy place, so he will not be struck dead. It's as if the Holy Spirit is so concentrated and so intense in the holy place that it must be warned to draw itself inward so as to allow the priest to enter safely. Over the blue tunic is worn something called an ephod. It's clasped together at the shoulders and has a woven band securing it around the waist. There are two onyx stones set in gold filigree, one on each shoulder. Each is engraved with six of the names of the tribes of Israel in the order of their birth. They are carried on the priest's shoulder as a reminder I think both to the Lord and to the priest, a reminder that this priest is standing on behalf of the entire nation. 
on the front of the ephod, on a breastplate, are mounted 12 precious stones, each one different, and each one engraved with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. This, the Lord says, is so the priest bears the names of the sons of Israel over his heart as he enters the Lord's presence. The beauty and symbolism of all this is truly breathtaking. The fabric of the breastplate is woven so it can be doubled over to form a sort of pocket behind the stones. In this pocket are two items called the urim and the thumim. Urim means flames or lights, and thumim means whole, blameless, complete. That immediately brings to mind God's very first invitation to Abram to walk before me and be blameless, whole, and complete. Here the priest is quite literally walking before the Lord, representing Israel. I think the idea of the Urim being a flame is also associated with utter holiness, of there being no impurity at all in Israel. And here's the most interesting part about the Urim and Thummim. Exodus 28.30 says this is how Aaron will bear the decision-making of the sons of Israel over his heart in the presence of the Lord. In the future, after Moses dies, these stones will be used to ask the Lord yes, no, or either or sorts of questions. In times of national need, the king or leader could call the high priest to him and consult the Urim and Thummim. We have no idea what the Urim and Thummim looked like or exactly how they worked. To top this all off, the priest wears a linen turban. On the front is a gold plate engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord. The gold plate with Holy to the Lord will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. That word acceptable actually means delight, favor, and pleasure. The Lord is delighted with us. And lastly, there's no mention of shoes. The priests are barefoot because they're on holy ground. Exodus 28.2 says these special garments are for glory and beauty, splendor and honor. It's as if the priests are to reflect God's own glory. This whole tabernacle, the tent of meeting, all the sacrifices, and all these garments are a tangible way of teaching the Israelites what is going on spiritually between them and the Lord. With this, they can never forget how holy the Lord is, nor can they forget that the Lord is continually, every single day, making it possible for them to be whole and blameless so they can draw near to God with full confidence. They can never forget how far the Lord will go to be their God, dwelling among them, cherishing them, delighting in them, and protecting them. None of this has changed. The Lord still makes it possible for us to come to him, and he still meets us right where we are. In our breakout sessions, We'll think about how these same symbols of access have come down to us as modern Christians. Hey, you can turn your uh, mics back on so that we can hear each other talk. Um, it's a small enough group today. So 
the as I noted in the instructions for the for the breakout session at the top, the core question is: Has God changed? Um, and the whole idea behind the questions was to to look at what we know about God now, to what God was teaching the Israelites about Himself back then, and how those rituals that He used back then are related to you know rituals and understandings that we have today. So. What what did y'all find in your discussion? We we forgot to answer that fundamental question from the very beginning because we were <laughs> answering the little questions along the way. But I think our response would have been no. God um, has not changed. The same, yeah. So, you were saying about how God meets how God was meeting the Israelites where they are at, and and God is still trying to meet us where we're at. And, and then, you know, I was talking about being Catholic and um, of course that's, you know, one of the oldest forms of Christian religion. So it has a lot of these uh, tangential things like the incense and the, the body and blood of Christ and the holy water and the sacramentals. And that's all for a design that, that was to meet the people where they were at at that time. And it's just continued but then Rossett went on to say how he didn't grow up with any of that stuff. And it meant, I mean, to him, God is meeting him in a very different way. Ross, that was your time now to go and talk. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, uh, people have, uh, in my opinion, uh, people are, are, are humans or, you know, whatever. Uh, we've all kind of filled in the gaps. Um, you know, and, and we talked about Paul. Paul was kind of an example of trying to bridge between the old and the new mm. uh, uh, ways of, of, of kind of reaching God through, obviously through Jesus. But, and, but Paul still did a, observe a lot of the Jewish ways too. And so, but, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, the way I see it is, yeah, God doesn't change, but he kind of changed up the way we, we could approach him and and communicate with him and, and have our sins forgiven. But unfortunately, as we always do as humans, we distort it in various ways. What else did y'all come up with? <laughs> well, one of the things also um, that kind of stood out to me and that I brought up in the group was that um, a lot of these rituals that were set up for the Israelites, there would have been a familiar counter um, ritual that they had seen in the, the other religions. You know, to us, it just seems like this incredible number of rules and, you know, sacrifices and all of these rituals that needed to be done. But that would not have been unfamiliar to the Israelites. It just, the, the it, it feels like God is changing the focus to be more of the person to God directly in many of these situations, as opposed to always having that, that not only religious figure, but also frequently a political figure within the culture that you were coming to, to speak to the gods on your behalf. And God is starting to teach the Israelites that 
you can come to me directly in many ways, which then was even more um, emphasized with Jesus and through Paul's teachings. Right. Right. I, I was just I was just thinking about the Jesuits. And when the Jesuits would come, because their mission was to to be missionaries to make as many disciples for God as they possibly could. And when they would go to a culture, they wouldn't necessarily wipe out the culture and start over again. They would start with what the people knew. And that's why we have all these things that are beautiful, like the Day of the Dead. I mean, in South America, I think you experience Christianity a lot differently than people from Europe experiencing. I'm talking mostly about Catholicism because that's what I know about, but it's not practiced the same way. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that when those people were acculturated, if you want to call that, they main they they retained a lot of their own um, traditions from whatever religion they were coming from. You know, people make comments about Easter. I think that and that's some also other... the same. Is if you look at the Greek, the way the Greek um, took over places, the Greeks and Romans, when they spread, they did the same thing. They didn't take away the people's cultures, where. When you look at like uh, when Germany tried to take over or other Europe, uh, England, they would go in and they'd wipe out all the culture and say, you can't do this. Um, we had the same thing in America when we started moving west. We didn't allow the Indians to keep their culture. We wanted to wipe it out. And I think anytime people try to wipe out somebody else's culture and somebody else's just totally wholesale wipe it out, that's when you start having the wars you have and stuff like that, because people don't want to give up themselves. And I think that just as an aside, that that um, whole idea might speak to um, how we should think about handling immigration. Just going to drop yeah. that there. Well, I was thinking, you know, like with Easter and Halloween and stuff like that, and we have all of the... Um, we have a refrigerator repairman just came in. So <laughs> if you hear background noises, but um, how that, um, you know, a lot of Christian churches criticize, you shouldn't do this at Easter. You shouldn't have Easter eggs. You shouldn't have bunnies. You shouldn't, because that's what the fertility gods and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But when Gail was teaching us earlier and she said, they had sacrifice of goats because they were sacrificing goats to the idols. And now they're going to sacrifice those goats to God and God didn't destroy. He destroyed the idols, but he didn't destroy their behavior, what they were doing. He refocused it where, where it belonged. And, you know, I've always struggled with that um, at Christmas and at Easter and, you know, all through the year, how, you know, you shouldn't do that. And Christians get so hung up on saying Merry Christmas and not Happy Holidays. And stuff. But I'm like, these are little things. And it's not, that's not what's important. The important is where your focus is. If you have your focus in the right place, the rituals are just a reminder. Rituals are a way to keep your focus. Yeah. That's exactly right. And Richard, I'm going to mute and ask my husband a question. So go ahead. 
No, go ahead. Um, and rituals are 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 very uh, that like they're they're very tangible. You know, they're they're and they're something. Um, one of the things that I think was important for God with the Israelites was that they understand they had a clear path to God. That they could start from wherever they were and there would be a clear path to forgiveness, you know, a clear path to God. Uh, and, and I, I was wanting to think about, you know, what that is in our own Christian culture nowadays, you know, what, what parts of our Christian culture, what speaks to your heart now? You know, one of the things, and I, I don't know if I even, if I've said this before, um, and I may have, I think I took it out of the notes for the lesson, but one of the things that I wanted to bring up was, was whenever I, am in a, a class and I'm teaching and I say to a room full of Christians, everybody who is absolutely positive, they're going to have and raise your hand and not every hand goes up immediately. You know, I want every hand to go up immediately. You need to have no doubt about that. And that's what the Lord was doing with these Israelites. He was saying, there's a clear path. You do not have to worry about this. You do not have to bear guilt. That's not what you're, you're made for. He said, just mail the gift to me. Mail the guilt to me. Give it to me. Every single one of you should be bedrock certain you're going to heaven. If not, then if you don't feel that viscerally, then somebody's been lying to you about God. What other insights did you all come up with in your talk? Were there questions? Didn't get to oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, at the end, where you asked, um, relating this back to the mercy seat, um, what's the combined message, and how is God towards us, and how are we supposed to be priests in the world, and um, how are we supposed to be towards others? And we basically came up with that God loves us and provided a way for us to be holy, and we need to be mindful of him and merciful to others. Right. Right. I was really struck in preparing this lesson by how interactive it was for the regular people. I don't think I'd ever realized that before. I'd, I, I think I'd always kind of yeah. thought of it as the priest doing it all right. Um, so when I actually sat uh, down and... Uh, uh, it, yeah. Wasn't that our experience of our many long time? And they, in the olden days, they even kept themselves behind a a, a, a locked, like grate. Yes, there you was had the grade. religious yeah. people, and then you had the regular people who didn't participate at all, except they just looked on. Right. This is they in the Catholic, Catholic liturgy. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and they also did that. I know. Um, I have a. a we had, I had a friend when I was growing up who was Jewish. 
And um, when they had the, what, I don't know what, the coming of age thing. I don't Bar remember the word for it. And then if you weren't Jewish, you stood in the back and you weren't allowed up. And then the people that were women that were Jewish were allowed into this place. And then the men that were Jewish were allowed to go up front. And that really struck me because um, when, especially later when we started going to church all the time, we were going to a Lutheran church and it was like, you know, hey, no, kids stay with their parents and you can, yeah, they can go to children's church after everything, you know, um, but I thought I found that so wrong because it was like people were trying to keep others from Jesus because they were putting or God, they were putting these barriers up. And, you know, even the women that were born as Jews were being kept from the front. And it just seems so wrong to me that people shouldn't be kept. And I think that, that was, I think that was one of Jesus's biggest, most radical messages is he mm-hmm. let the women sit directly at his feet. He had women disciples. He was funded by the women. He let women speak in his presence. He let women touch him. He let women participate in the discussion. Um, it was one of the biggest things he had to offer was exactly your perspective, is don't throw up the boundaries. Don't throw up barriers for people that they have to climb over. And the same thing with the allowing the Gentiles into Christianity. It wasn't, it's not just us four no more anymore. Yes. And the children. Jesus even made a point yeah. yeah. for right. the little children to go. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Paul, I mean, as much as people love to pull up the, the, the letter where Paul said, you know, women should be silent in the church. It's also important to remember that Paul credited women with founding churches and with serving as as deacons and and with you know they were given a position of honor in a lot of the churches that he founded um and so you know even though he was i think in some ways more more traditionally oriented than jesus was he also recognized that there had been a change and there needed to be a change in in the church as opposed to Jewish tradition. Um, and I mean, I remember going to a bar mitzvah of um, a friend of one of my daughters. It was a reformed um, temple. And there it, it was, um, there was not that separation. It, it was, um, th- there was a, a female rabbi and the women and children and men all sat together and the service basically became like a Bible study, a discussion group, and everyone was welcome to contribute. Even the children were welcome to offer insights and opinions on the, on the passage that was being discussed. And so um, there also has been a change, I think, in, in Jewish tradition in, in many of the, the, you know, not everyone is that rigidly traditional anymore. That is true. There are several different streams of Judaism and um, 
unless unless you're you know kind of ultra ultra orthodox then the women have much more of a role and there's much more freedom in interaction because i mean it just makes sense <laughs> that that god's not going to get get treat you know one gender differently than another i mean gender has like nothing to do with this right gender is a cultural construct um even clearly back then in in the old, in the hebrew bible um and so there's i think there's a lot here to think about um i i just th- just going through if you have time during the week to take each one of these little points on the on the question sheet and just meditate on it like like how rich it would be to meditate on what it means for the covenant between us and the Lord to be present inside of the mercy seat. Just to think about the ramifications of that um, and what that means for us. Uh, and And I also just am starting to want to to begin to separate the outer ritual from the purpose from what it's communicating about God from the unchanging part I think the ritual all changes we clearly don't sacrifice animals anymore you know we don't even we don't even (laughs) burn flour anymore you know excuse me my nose is just um the rituals themselves change the underlying meaning stays exactly the same from back here in leviticus all the way through the new testament jesus to now the meaning is the same but but as you all noted you don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater there is great value. The Lord had a ritual for meaning. The Lord made these rituals for a reason. And the reason is because rituals are a way of involving all five senses in our worship Mm -hmm. of the Lord. It's a way of, of coming at us in different ways. Don't limit your study of the Lord to only what you can read and what you can hear. So begin to think about how you have, if you have fallen into a rut of how you hear the Lord or approach the Lord, think about what sense is being omitted and bring into your worship of the Lord this week some other sense and see what that opens in your soul. And so that's the end of class today. Um, Thank you, Gail. This uh, this is all really dry stuff to read in the Bible, but I think there's a lot of richness. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I have a question, something that you didn't actually touch on unless I missed it, which is possible because I had things going on like my cat crawling on the table. But um, (laughs) the, the bells on the bottom of their cloak when they were going into the Holy of Holies. Yes. Um, they also had a rope tied around their leg. No, they didn't. That was a myth. They that didn't. That is a myth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That is tradition, oh, and, that? and it makes and and it and it um, sounds good, but it's a myth. That's really. Yep. Do you know where? Yeah, I thought that from? was true too, Shirley. Because I'm too. like, she didn't even talk about that. Why didn't she talk about that? Because <laughs> if they got struck dead, then they were able to the bells stopped ringing and they could pull them back out. Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what it sounds good you know you know and somebody just thought well what if somebody dies then what you gonna do you know um, and we haven't real covered all of this we're gonna talk about the festivals and the special special things they do which is and that's when we'll talk about the high priest entering the Holy of Holies which he did once a year right right and and I will bring but that he up. didn't have a rope on his leg no it doesn't not. say that anywhere in the Bible nope and there's oh, no my historical gosh. evidence of it at all, zero. Oh my wow. God, I can't wait to tell really? my daughter. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing here. I was sitting in my bed in the other room and my daughter was out here where I am right now having her Bible study the other night and she's leading this Bible study and that was one of the things they talked about because they were talking about the tabernacle. Right. And that was one of the things that she talked about was the bells on the bottom and why, and because that's what we all learned in Bible school. Yeah, I well, learned the that. Bells the, the, bells, the bells are real. The bells are real. The bells are real. The bells right, will tell you if something happened. You know, if he stops moving, you're not going to hear those bells. You know, but but the so, whole, but how would they get him out of the holy of holies if he did die in there? Well, it didn't happen, so I don't think we have to worry about it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the Lord. Well, I was thinking like the, the, the priest was like hundred <laughs> years old or something. What would happen, in my estimation, is when a high priest dies naturally, the priest that the position of high priest passes to one of his sons. Okay. Uh, okay. And so there so, would always be a high priest to go back in there and get him if they happen to you die. You got to think this through. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes more sense. I am. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. I almost let it pass by without asking, and I went, "No, I'm going to ask that question." Oh yeah, I'm glad you so asked glad that, Shirley, because I had a, I had been taught that as well. Yeah, I, you know, and I had never questioned it. Now, I had Julia either. had an observation too. I was, I'm going to goad her to share with you. <laughs> she said she thought the priests had a really good gig there with all that meat. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I was like, because I missed the whole opening, but I was thinking. As I was reading, man, they get to eat all this food. Everybody else has to smell it. They don't get to eat, you know. The whole the whole community smelling these offerings, and they're happening all the time. How hungry are they? And then the priests get to eat for two days, and then they get to burn it some more. It was like <laughs> it's like you know what came to my mind when I was putting this together was like, gosh. I know how good this smells. It smells like a Texas barbecue house. And <laughs> like constant Virginia, grilling, you know, and, 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 but I was so thrilled to see that really the people get to eat these too, you know, that the only thing that's getting burned is the fat and the internal organs and, and the priests get to eat and the people get to eat most of the, in terms of quantity of sacrifices, most of them are these, you know, those three that I had on the right of the chart, the, the free will offerings and the fellowship offerings and the vow offerings. And all of those are things that the people themselves ate too. The only offerings that were getting burned completely up, the whole animal 
were when it was a sin of the community, you know, a big deal kind of sin, you know, and that's not going to happen that, that often. Now, um, I know that we're not at, at Samuel yet, but um, wasn't that one of the things that, that God was upset with Eli's sons about was that they were serving as priests and they were sort of extorting the people in terms of sacrifices and they were demanding more things that would go to the priest and they were not distributing it to the poor? Correct. They were taking more than what God said was their share. That was not cool. Yeah. And we will definitely yeah. get to that. Wow. This was cool. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for asking your question. <laughs> next week, next well, no, week we're going week. to hit another clobber verse. So um, we'll be doing. We'll oh, be yippee, doing yippee. Oh, cool. Some, yeah. some, there was one quick observation I wanted to make that I had brought up in, in, in our breakout group, which was that I, one of the things I've found really fascinating is that millennials um, especially those that were raised in, in more um, casual worship environments um, are the ones that have left those churches for various reasons are finding meaning in more traditional churches with the rituals, with the, as my daughter refers to it, the smells and bells. Um, which is what you were talking about, Gail, of going back to, you know, the, all the senses being involved in the worship. You know, so many of my daughter's friends are, are attending Episcopal churches and Orthodox churches um, because of the significance to them of the rituals, the icons, the incense, the bells, the candles, um, all of that. And, and the fact that the Eucharist is served at every service. Yeah. That is profoundly meaningful to a lot of millennials who did not grow up with that. It, it, it has made God more accessible to them um, because of the, the, the physical sensual experience. Hmm. That's be funny because my kids are the opposite of that because <laughs> we went to, um, when, my kids all grew up in the Baptist church and now we're going to a Methodist church, which is more ritualistic than the Baptist church is. probably a lot less ritualistic than your Catholic church. But, um, and my husband grew up Episcopalian. So the rituals, you know, for him are, that's fine, but whatever, we can go either way. So the first time my kids were in, um, our Methodist church and we did, uh, um, confirmation of faith and everybody is saying like the apostles creed or whatever together in one voice and and the lord's prayer after after they do the intercessory prayer we always all say the lord's prayer together and my kids were like you know in the planet of the apes where they're praying to the bomb and they're all saying all that that's how my kids felt like this is very weird this is very like cultish or no, 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 you don't understand. It's so funny. You know what? There is there is huge, huge value in ritual. And and there is huge value. I want you to be feel free to create your own ritual for any situation you need it in. Um, very often when I'm doing pastoral care and someone is wrestling with something that has 
wounded them deeply and has caused years of pain. Um, I very often will design a ritual and give it to them, suggest it to them um, as a way of helping to make progress, to bring closure, to have something they can um, see, feel, taste, smell, touch, you know. Um, so so I, I, my first husband was Catholic, so I can relate to, to Julie. I spent many, many years in the Catholic church uh, going to mass. I actually led youth choirs and did all kinds of stuff. Um, and I was in that church every time it opened. And I loved the ritual. I loved the mass. I loved everything about it. I didn't like the little short homilies, you know, because I, I, and I, and I didn't like that there was not this kind of in-depth Bible study available at all, you know, at least in the ones I was at. Um, I was appalled at how little the, my peers knew about scripture, but that's not really unique to the Catholic church. Honestly, they don't own the, they don't own that. Um, I have found that in lots of churches, but, but they have not lost the sense of the value of ritual and liturgy, you know? Um, and I, I think you know, the Baptist church, that. unfortunately teaches that, like the ritual prayer, especially, you know, saying a corporate prayer, which we do in our church quite often for various things, but saying that corporate prayer together for, for the Lord's Supper uh, communion, we say a, a corporate prayer of um, confessing our sins and asking mm -hmm. forgiveness and stuff like that. And, you know, growing up in the Baptist church, they put that under vain repetitions and, you know, that we're not supposed to have vain repetitions and stuff. And I'm like, if you're thinking about what you're saying and it's actually a part of who you are, it's not a vain repetition, mm -hmm. you know, and this isn't yeah. for show. This isn't us showing other people like, you know, if you, cause I think the vain repetitions things came in with the publican and the center and, you know, it's not like we're standing on the street corners trying to show how holy we are. No, this is an individual an individual part of worship that we're doing corporately, that we're mm -hmm. all individually worshiping God as a group. Well, you know, I think that's really interesting, Shirley, that, that your church taught that because, um, you know, maybe I'm just enough older than you that um, I, I had a different experience growing up. And, you know, my family attended a lot of different denominations as I grew up because we were missionaries and we were itinerant. Um, but in the Baptist churches, I remember that in the Pew Bibles, at the back of the Pew Bibles was this section called responsive reading. Yeah. Where, oh, yeah. where you know, the, the, the leader would read a verse and then the congregation would corporately read a verse, a section of the passage. And, and that was not considered a vain repetition. That was participation ah but they weren't prayers they were bible well, verses <laughs> well yes and no because it was frequently used in a confessional way in the service that interesting it's it's funny because when we we had a short stint in a baptist southern baptist church for about five years um and i remember that my daughter's um sunday school teacher came and talked to me and he's like I don't understand. We were learning about the Lord's Prayer, and Sandra just 
popped up and read the whole thing just by memory. And he's like, are you teaching her to do that at home? And I said, no, we're Lutheran. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I said, we're Lutheran. We're, we're here just on because the teens wanted to come where there's lots of teens and our church had none. And, and he's like, I just don't understand that. And the other thing that, that was like one of my, my happiest memories of being in that Baptist church, because there wasn't a lot because it was so different from what I was raised. And, you know, uh, our, our Sunday school teacher even said that anyone that was Catholic went to hell. And it's like, oh, no. My grandmother's sitting up there beside Jesus and they're having good conversations. Oh. They're speaking to me, anybody. Um, and so he, but the youth minister for the little kids, the, the small kids. Children's pastor. Um, they? Huh? The children's pastor? Yeah, the children's, that's what. And we had lost our dog. Our dog had died and Rhea wanted to pray that he would be happy in heaven. Oh, no. Mm. And the the youth pastor, the children's pastor came to me and he said, you have got to stop teaching her that. And I said, why? And he said, well, do animals don't go to heaven. I said, yes, they do. Read the Bible. Right. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, give me a few minutes. Um, I was in Luana and I was doing stuff. And I said, on break, I will find the passages you need to read. And so when we, I gave him those passages before we left. And the next Sunday he came to me and he said, you know what? You're right animals do go to heaven. Your pets go to heaven. And I said, <laughs> it's in the Bible. And uh -huh. he's like, I never read those as that way. And I'm like, how could you not read? You know, God has his eyes on the sparrow and if the sparrow falls, he knows. I mean, God cares about animals. Yeah. And other horses, right? <laughs> yeah. And they were even trying to teach, um, you know, they even told, uh, my oldest daughter that you know there are no animals of any kind in heaven and my daughter, sad and lonely place that would be yeah and my daughter said well where are the animals because that's where i want to go <laughs> <laughs> i think I, last I, time i remember we were animals too so yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, oh but we I, have souls and the animals don't have souls oh uh, animals have pure souls you know, my husband is doing research for a book that he's writing right now on the soul, mm -hmm. um, on on traditional understanding of it in all different religions and historically how the church has viewed the soul. And one of the big things that was really interesting to him was how some of the earlier church fathers looked at the issue of the soul and considered that even plants had sort of a, a primitive soul and that as humans develop in utero the the soul sort of grows too that it starts as like a plant soul and then becomes like an animal soul and then becomes like a human soul at birth mm -hmm. um and uh, so there's a lot of different views about souls that that a lot of modern protestant churches don't even consider. St. Francis um, of Assisi used to talk to rocks and trees and plants and animals and, you know, have yeah. conversations, you know, because mm -hmm. they were beloved of God. That's just the, God loves creation. God is in all of creation. I believe that, you know, I believe God is in yeah. all of creation. Jesus himself said the rocks would speak 
if we stopped praising God, the rocks would start praising God. That's right. Well, I got to go, but you know what? Sometimes this little discussion after the lesson is even better than the lesson. I know. <laughs> right? necessarily. We're just as good. We yes. learned so much good stuff. We, it's fun. I love y'all. Good stuff. It's great. Fills the soul to be able to be together a little bit. Yes, oh, it does. Bye, yeah. next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye,